Well, good morning, Highland. I hope you guys enjoy the sound of the chatter of the kids in the background as they're getting everything ready. And, you know, it's, it is a blessing to hear my kids come home and repeat something that they picked up in the sermon. So it's, uh, it's one of our core values here that we would pass the baton of faith and leadership on to the next generation. And it's good to actually physically be able to see and to hear that happen. For the last several weeks, we've been in a, um, in a series called Treasures. And we're looking at the things that, um, that we have because we're in Christ. For those of us who are in Christ, and a lot of these things um, really complement each other. So I was saying uh, to one of the other elders this morning, you know, a lot of what I'm going to say this morning has already been said in previous sermons. And his response is, we're hard-headed enough, we need to hear it again. Anyway, I thought he was a good example of someone to be saying that. So, um, so without mentioning any names, uh, that's why um, we're going to be repeating some of the stuff that we've heard in, um, in the previous uh, sermons in this series. But this morning, we're going to be looking at what it means to be made whole, what it means to be complete. And we're going to be looking at uh, something that happened in Mark chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, either turn them on or open them or whatever applies, we're going to look at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It says this, When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because the crowd, because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we never seen anything like this before. Let's pray. Father God, be with us this morning as we look into your word, as we look at what you have said and communicated to us through your word. God, I just pray that we would see, Lord, through this, this narrative, what happened to this man, God, the beauty, the beauty of a God of justice and wrath but a God of justice and wrath who's also the God of love and mercy and what that means for us as it pertains to being whole. Lord, I pray, God, that we would see, Lord, the void that's there when we're apart from you. And God, that we would see the benefit and the joy that's there when we are in you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. 
Amen. Well, this series has been anchored in the Apostle Paul's words that we see in Ephesians 3.8. In Ephesians 3.8, Paul says, Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. The endless treasures available to them in Christ. You know, over the last several weeks, we've been looking at these treasures, these things that are ours because of Christ and what he has accomplished, what he has done for us. And this morning, as we look at the treasure of being made whole and being made complete, we will see that apart from God, that can never truly be. But when we, when we think about a treasure, I think we all pretty much understand what a treasure is. You know, if you look in Matthew chapter 13, there's a description of what a treasure is. And, you know, it's, it's being told, the parable is being told that fellowship with God, right? Standing reconciliation with God is this treasure. And it is so valuable that everything else should be forsaken for this thing. You know, a treasure is something of so much worth, so much value, we're willing to forsake all else to go after this treasure. So the treasure this morning is wholeness, wholeness that only comes through a relationship with God. And I want to be clear this morning from the very beginning, whatever it means to be whole, however a Christian may define it, when we talk about being whole or being made whole, we are also talking about being rescued. If you remember nothing else I say this morning, remember that. Being made whole also means being rescued. The two cannot be separated. So what does it mean to be whole or to be made whole? I think this is a question that humanity has struggled to answer since our beginning, since the fall. We realize that there's a void there whether we want to admit it or not. The problem, I think, or the reason we care is because we really do recognize our lack of wholeness. And I was looking for examples to give to show how many view wholeness in our society or in our, in our culture today. You know, what does culture say about wholeness? And of course, you can look at, you know, the materialism that abounds in the first world, or you can look at, uh, you know, the physical needs that abound in the third world and all of these things. And you can attach you know, something to that that says, if this, then you're whole. If you have this or you have that or whatever. But if you take it to a more, I don't know, I hesitate to say it, but a more spiritual level, though this is not spirituality at a whole, I found a good quote. And um, so as we look at culture, I always look at it as a good counter, a good how not to do things. If you want to be whole, this is not how you do it. But I ran across this article by Deepak Chopra. And if you're unfamiliar with him, good. Um, but if not, he's the uh, Oprah New Age guru. Um, and he has a formula about what it means to be whole. Now, incidentally, this formula is not all you need. You also need to buy his book too, right? Um, and it's a rather lengthy book that says really nothing. But here is his formula. Listen to this. Know that your true self is already whole. You don't have to learn or acquire spiritual value. All spiritual value resides at the core of the self. Self-centered religious thought. I think in some sense, this quote really does sum up 
world religions as a whole, as they try to answer the question, what does it mean to be whole, they'll have something like this. This certainly applies to New Age and Eastern thought. But listen to the words. Even though it might not fit into some of the other religions perfectly, what you hear is a, 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 um, a formula that requires great effort on part of the self. You will work out your own wholeness. It's up to you. You can do it. And that's absolute nonsense. And I think that we know it's nonsense, yet this is the very basic premise of every world religion except Christianity. You can do it. It's up to you. Yeah, you may have a little problem. Call it sin if you will. But you can work this out. You can, you can get yourself past this problem. The problem with this is that it ignores the very nature of man. The problem is it also ignores the true reality of God and his character, and it ignores the true nature and reality of sin and the power that it has over the non-believer. You see, we are not whole, not because we haven't worked good enough or we're not practicing the right guru formula. We are not whole because we have ripped ourselves from a loving God. In so doing, we have removed ourselves from what makes us whole. And apart from restoration, reconciliation in that relationship, wholeness will never be experienced. So this morning, as we look at Mark 2, I think this is a good example of a man who's truly being made whole. And I call this the Mark 2 dilemma because as we read these words in this part of the gospel, we've not made it yet to the cross. Okay, there's some things that don't make sense without the cross. So when we read it, it almost sounds like there's a real dilemma going on here. This is a popular story, and many of us are familiar with it. But let's not let our familiarity with this section of Scripture cause us to miss the main point. See, Mark 2 is a pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry. In this passage, we will hear one of the most important sentences ever spoken. A sentence that, is, that absolutely is essential to our rescue and our being made whole. Listen to Mark's words in Mark 2. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. They, then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. We must stop right here. The narrative continues, but right here we've heard the key to understanding wholeness. Jesus says, My child, your sins are forgiven. Consider that. I mean, just consider these words. I think we pass over it too quickly, too often. My child, your sins are forgiven. Here we have Jesus. He's already proven that he can heal the sick. Much of the first chapter of Mark is already dedicated to Jesus demonstrating his power over disease. Word has gotten out and people are beginning to take notice and they do what we would probably do. And that is they try to get in on the action. They try to get Jesus to fix 
their infirmities, to fix our problems. So they're coming to him. And it's gotten to the point that Jesus can hardly minister because of the crowds. Then you have these four guys and their paralyzed friend. They believe, they have faith that Jesus is the answer to their problem. So they take him to Jesus. The problem is they can't even get to Jesus because so many other people have crowded in around him. They can't get in, but they are sure of one thing. They are sure that if they can get their friend to Jesus, he will be able to heal their friend. So sure, in fact, that they're willing to take very drastic measures to get their friend in front of Jesus. So stop and think about this for a minute. They hear that Jesus is on his way to Capernaum, right? They know the miracles that Jesus has been performing. And he's already performed some in Capernaum. He's healed Peter's mother. It says in Mark chapter one, he's healing all the sick. And so everybody's starting to come to him and they're in this desperate attempt to get their friend in front of Jesus so that this paralyzed man can be healed. And they get there and there's no hope for him. So they go up on top of the roof. And if you've ever seen the structure, they still build like this today. It's basically just a, just mud walls, mud brick walls. Um, and then on top is what you would expect. There's beams and then there's thatch and all this sort of stuff. And then there's straw and then they put mud on top of it. And then there's some tiles that they put on top. I mean, this stuff is really like this thick, okay? So when we say that they dug through, when scripture says dug through, they, it literally means they had to dig through. Not only did they dig through, but they calculated it out well enough that when they got through and got a hole big enough, they were right there at Jesus. They lower their friend down and Jesus looks at him and says, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now stop and think for a minute what they must have thought. They're here to see that their friend be healed, to be made whole, and he's paralyzed. The first thing I think they thought is like, oh, okay, Jesus, but um, he's really here because he's paralyzed. You see, to them... Like us today, oftentimes being made whole is contingent upon some external thing. For the man, it's obvious. He's paralyzed. Physical health is what they think will make him whole. Sometimes financial stability may be put there instead of physical healing or whatever the case may be. Wholeness, we often associate with some kind of external standard being met. Jesus, however, knew the true condition of the man. He knew what his greatest need was, and his greatest need was the forgiveness of sins. And so we see Jesus here forgiving this man's sin. You see, I think perhaps we think this way anyway. You know, we desire to be loved by God, but something major stands in our way. And what stands in our way is not physical infirmities, financial stability, or whatever. What stands in our way is this holy creator who is perfect. That's what's keeping us from wholeness. I know that sounds weird, but as we continue looking at this, I hope it makes sense. You see, we live in a moral universe just as there are physical laws that none of us doubt that govern our universe and they are absolute there are also moral laws that govern our universe, and they are absolute as well. The moral law that I'm speaking of is fixed in the character and the nature of God. 
With God, we see a creator that is morally spotless in character and in action. He is upright and he is pure. He is untainted with evil desires, evil motives, evil thoughts, or evil acts. God is holy, and as such, he is the source and the standard of what is right in the universe. He's complete, and he is not lacking anything. And this is truly, this is truly a valuable thing because this means that we have a God which is pure, and he values purity. This means we have a God um, who detests impurity. He hates evil and cannot tolerate or encourage sin in any way. The injustices that may make you angry, we cannot even begin to imagine how angry they make this holy God. And he is holy, and his holiness is not merely a decision that God has made at some point in the past. It's not like God woke up one morning and said, I think I'll be holy today. I'll start being holy today. No, it is much deeper than that. God is holy because it's a part of, of the changeless characteristic of his eternal nature. Holiness is part of his very essence. By definition, God is only God insofar as he's holy and he's the other attributes that we read about him. And this is not only true for God's holiness, but for his other attributes as well. They are part of God's very nature. He cannot operate outside of these attributes. So God is holy and he's also righteous. He is just. This righteousness is expressed and revealed in his moral law. God gives to everyone exactly what they deserve. No more and no less. This means that God is also a judge. As judge, we can trust that he will judge fairly. We will get what we deserve. And he does this without respect for persons. This means that God does not even play favorites. And this is a good thing. This is an awesome thing, except for the fact that we're sinners who has offended this holy God. You see, we have ripped ourselves from God and sinned against him. And now we stand before him, not only as our creator, but also as our judge. And God will take action against our sin. We spend a lot of time ignoring the judgment of God, trying not to talk about it, and thinking rather about the forgiveness of God. And the forgiveness of God is an awesome doctrine that we see in Scripture. Uh, but we must understand that God's forgiveness is very different than human forgiveness. A lot of times we expect God to act as we do. God's forgiveness is not like a parent's forgiveness. You know how we do sometimes. A kid disobeys, right? Like, and they've disobeyed majorly, and you've caught them. And they know it. They're caught. But sometimes it's just easier to let it go. Sometimes, perhaps some of y'all might be a lazy parent like I am sometimes, and I would rather just brush it off to the side and not worry about it anymore because it's just much easier to do that. We just let it go. We do that because we are a bad judge. That's not the case with God, however. You see, unlike us, God is a perfect judge, and a perfect judge cannot simply arbitrarily forgive. God cannot say, I have a tender heart, child. Let's just ignore this. Let's let it go. No, you see, if God were to do that, he would be truly wicked. 
It would destroy the moral fabric of our universe. We may think to do so would be a wonderful thing and a beautiful thing, but it's not. It would be a damning thing rather than a beautiful thing. We would have no hope. Think about it like this. What would you think if you were sitting at a trial? A man has taken something from someone by force. He even murdered the victim to get this thing. The evidence is in and the man is guilty. What would any of us think if the judge declared that the man was guilty, but then said, you know, I'm a loving judge. I have a tender heart. You're guilty, but I cannot hold you accountable. Go home. You're forgiven. I mean, that sounds absurd to us. It sounds offensive. We would be angered at such injustice, and rightly so. But the guilty man... The guilty man would be happy about the, with the injustice. He'd be happy that he was set free. In his brokenness, he would have no regard for true justice. He is dead to the idea of true justice. At this point, the law of the land is no longer useful. It is only arbitrary, and as such, morality is no longer a thing. That has propelled this society into relativism. And sometimes we hold relativism up as this awesome thing. If we could just be more relativistic, but we do not see the real danger there because with, relative, with relativism comes the death of any standard. There is no right or wrong. There just is. And it takes away from us the ability to ever, ever comment on any injustice. And if that's true of a human court, it's true of God as well. See, here's the problem. We are the guilty man. That's why we don't like this thought of God being just. And we stand before God, not as an arbitrary judge, but as a holy and a perfect judge. We are not whole because we were created to be in perfect relationship with this judge, and it has been broken. Stop and consider this for a minute. If we were sinless and we were before God as judge, would we really even care that he carries the title judge? We wouldn't. There would be no guilt, no reason to, no reason to fear. But yet here we stand, guilty. The Bible says we are dead in our disobedience and sin. The Bible also says that we have all sinned, all of us. We have all violated God's moral law. We have violated his very character and his very nature. God cannot even look upon us as David declared, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. It may not dwell with him. It cannot dwell with him. And this is a terrible situation for us as sinners. It means that wholeness, that restoration with God, according to human effort, is completely impossible. We cannot ever erase our debt, no matter what we may try to do to accomplish it. We cannot expect God to erase it either because that would be requiring God to forfeit his holy nature. He will not, he cannot, and to do so would require him to deny his very character. So there's that. That's the picture everybody wants to see, this God of judgment standing over us. Yet we hear throughout Scripture things such as, my child, your sins are forgiven. We read the Psalms, 
And the Psalms where David is dealing with serious, serious sin that he's committed, and there's hope throughout it. It's an appeal to God and his righteousness and his justice. We hear David say in Psalm 103, God will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. In light of everything I said for the first 20 minutes, we should ask ourselves the question, how can this be? How can, how can David say this? How can Jesus say, my child, your sins are forgiven? How can God declare us forgiven when we're guilty? How can we be made whole? Has God destroyed his character? Has he thrown away his moral universe? These are serious questions, and we must understand them. And I think the next few verses of Mark 2 will give us some insight, some direction in understanding what may to some appear to be somewhat of a contradiction when it comes to the doctrine of God and what we believe about him. But listen in Mark chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. It says, But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. We say a lot about the scribes and the Pharisees, how wrong they were, how they missed this, how they missed that. And oftentimes that's true, but right here, right here they're right. If Jesus were not God, he would in fact be a blasphemer. We must put off this ugly notion that Jesus is some kind of moral teacher or some kind of spiritual guru. You know, this idea that Jesus is one of many ways to find acceptance to the Father. That is absolute nonsense. And it is an offense to a holy God who provided this way of salvation. You see, Jesus is either God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, or he was a blasphemer. So the scribes were right when they acknowledged that only God can forgive sins. However, they were wrong for assuming that Jesus was not God. He is God. And we can see that in this passage by him declaring a divine prerogative here. He says that your sins are forgiven. The scribes were right. Only God can do that. But even so, even with Jesus being God, Jesus is forgiving sin. Remember, we're not to the cross yet. And it almost seems like an arbitrary forgiveness. However, if we understand this from the cultural context, the Jewish context of the day, I think it makes sense. You see, to the Jew, forgiveness of sin came through the sacrifice of a substitute. God did not just willy-nilly forgive sins in the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews makes it clear. He says, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The punishment for sin is death. God made this clear in Genesis 2. Adam, still whole, still unfallen, still without sin, was told that with sin, with rebellion against God, would come death. And once sin came into the world, the need for death as a covering for that sin would be required. This set into motion the Jewish system of sacrifice. 
They would sacrifice an animal as an offering and a covering for sin. In Leviticus, we see a picture of this uh, as it's speaking of what Aaron, the high priest at the time, was to do. It says in Leviticus 16.21, He will lay both of his hands on the goat's head and confess over it all the wickedness, rebellion, and sins of the people of Israel. In this way, he will transfer the people's sin to the head of the goat. Then a man specially chosen for the task will drive the goat into the wilderness. However, this system was, was not complete. It, it, never, it always had to be redone. It had to be repeated. It was never permanent. But before Leviticus was ever written... Way back in the very beginning, when sin first entered the world, God had made a promise. He had made a declaration. We had sinned, and our brokenness had now separated us from God, as Becca was telling the kids this morning. And this separation meant that we were no longer whole, and we, in and of ourselves, could never, we could never be made whole again, except through a rescue. See, God must judge our sin. The penalty must be paid for God to remain just and holy. We needed a substitute. And that came first in the form of the sacrificial system. But God always had a substitute in mind, a permanent solution. Listen to God's decree in Genesis 3.15. And I will cause hostility. This is God speaking to the serpent, to Satan, to the devil. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head. He will kill Sin, and you will strike his heel. Speaking, of course, of the wounds that would be inflicted on Christ uh, on the cross. So the promise of a perfect substitute was given before the temporary system was ever put in place. God's plan for forgiveness was set before the world ever began. The sacrificial lamb that was slain before the world was formed was Jesus. Adam's sins... And this gets into some stuff that I know people have a hard time with, but just bear with me for a minute. Sin, for us, is by choice. We choose to. It's by nature. Um, We can't help but do it. But it's also by inheritance. Adam sinned. That condemned humanity. We were under the headship of Adam, which would require then that we have another representative a better Adam, which scripture called, which in scriptures made clear that that's Christ. But listen to what the apostle Paul says in Romans concerning how God is going to deal with this inherited sin that we all have. Romans five twelve says, "Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned." For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many." And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, 
much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Adam sinned and death entered into humanity through Adam. We sin by choice and we sin uh, by inheritance. The effects of sin, of rebellion against God are so deep that in the first act of disobedience, sin entered into Adam and all those who would come after him. To us, that may not seem fair, but that's only because we do not have a correct view or an accurate view of what sin is. We are like the guilty man that I spoke of before. Injustice, in his case, he thought uh, meant benefit. We do not truly understand the severity of sin and the holiness of God. We feel a need to be whole, but we do not even recognize how broken we really are. Our brokenness is so complete that we cannot escape it, and our efforts are worthless in trying. The problem is that we have sinned against a holy and eternal God, and a finite being, a created being, can never fix that once it has happened. That is why the Old Testament system was only temporary. But hope and promise showed up on the scene that day in Capernaum. Jesus said, my child, your sins are forgiven. That is an absurd statement and an outright lie if it was spoken by any other person in human history other than Jesus Christ. Mere men cannot fix sin, but the eternal Son of God can, and he has you see, Jesus here is not just forgiving sin. He's looking ahead in this, in this situation here in Capernaum where he heals this man. He is looking ahead to when he himself would serve as a substitute. He would stand in our place and our sins would be imputed. They would be placed on him. He would quite literally die the death that we deserve to die. Listen to Paul's words concerning this again. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's Adam's sin, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinner, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Jesus is the final substitute. He's the final sacrifice. This is atonement. I mean, this, this is really what it's all about. This is atonement. This is what it means to be made whole. This is our rescue. In Christ, we see a God of justice and wrath. Rightly so. We have offended him. He has not only the right, but the moral obligation to judge us based on our actions, our sin against him. But we also see a God of love and mercy. And not only do we see him on opposite ends of the spectrum, but we see them coming together. We see all the attributes being left intact. 
The moral fabric of the, our universe is still whole. And this was the excitement of the whole Old Testament. Anytime you see forgiveness in the Old Testament, they're looking ahead to that promise that was made in Genesis 3.15. They're looking ahead to the cross. This is truly a beautiful thing. You know, we may think a God who arbitrarily forgives would be a good thing because we are guilty and because we're poor judges ourselves, but that is not a good thing. You see, no, God took it upon himself to fix the brokenness that we created. Stop and think about that. We want so desperately to escape judgment because we don't understand the severity of our own sin. Now, I understand the severity of your sin, not mine, yours, I do see all the time. I mean, it's easy for me to say, you deserve to be judged, but I'm like the guilty man who is acquitted by the wicked judge. I'm like, yeah, I'm happy to be acquitted. What's that mean to me? But that doesn't work. It can't be that way. And with God, we see um, a, a God who is a judge. He is a just judge. He requires payment as he should, but he's also loving and merciful in providing the sacrifice, the substitute that would be required for us to be made whole again. And the band can come on up. I want to look for just a minute at the wholeness that comes with being made or being um, uh, in Christ. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians. He says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul, of course, is talking a little bit about what happens uh, post-forgiveness, what happens once we're made whole. But listen, listen to what he's saying here. I think so often we carry a ton of guilt on ourselves. We've been forgiven by Christ. We, we, we know and we understand what it means for him to be our substitute, but we carry a level of guilt with us that makes us think we're not good enough. And in this verse, Paul is saying, not only are we forgiven, but we are the very ambassadors of Christ. He is what we're going to use to take this message forward. Think of the awesome responsibility he's putting on us. You see, our wholeness is so complete that our very natures change. They change and we then are viewed by God as if we were Christ. And we're still in this world. We still struggle with sin and that causes us to question our wholeness. Joel spoke last week about what wholeness is and he talked about the uh, the, uh, the thoughts of Paul in Romans 7, you know, Romans 7, where he says, wretched man that I am, the things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I do want to do, I don't do. And then he goes on to say, but there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Once we have received that forgiveness, once we have been brought alive, made alive through Christ, we are whole and we can rest in the security that comes with that wholeness. See, wholeness comes only through the restored relationship between God and the sinner. And that re restoration, that reconciliation comes only through God's rescue. But let's not forget where we fit into, into this equation. Let's always keep a mind on what we were rescued from. We were dead. The Bible describes the sinner as being dead to God. I saw a meme this morning on Facebook, and it showed 
a, a, a skeleton is obviously an archaeological dig or whatever. And it says, this is Bob. Bob is dead to trespasses and sin. We're just waiting on Bob to accept Jesus. Let's wait and see what happens. And the point they were trying to make is we don't even understand how truly dead to God we are or we were before our forgiveness. We were separated from him and we're only made alive by his grace. I don't know where you may be today and maybe, maybe you're here and you do believe but maybe you do feel like perhaps you're separated from God. You do view yourself as standing there in front of this righteous judge and you acknowledge that and you acknowledge you need a savior and a substitute. So as we close out this morning, if that's you, um, I'll be up front, I'll be over here. Um, come talk to us. And this morning, as we do every morning, as we close out the service, there's gonna be couples in the corners of the room and what we're doing is we're remembering this sacrifice that makes us whole, this price, this high price that uh, Jesus paid for us. So if you're here this morning and you're a Christ follower, we invite you to join with us. They'll be, a they'll be holding a plate of bread, which represents Christ's broken body, and they'll be holding a cup of juice, which represents God, or, uh, Christ's blood that was shed for us. And if you're here this morning, and you identify as a Christ follower, we would invite you to join with us. And if you're here and you're still checking everything out, we'd also invite you uh, to just sit back and observe. That's okay. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you're a God, Lord, who did not leave us in our sin and our separation from you. God, you're a God who took upon yourself the weight of our sins our transgressions so that we could be made whole, so that we could be restored to right relationship with you. Lord, be with us as we go through our lives, as we go through these days to carry with us the reality of the wholeness and the completeness of being made whole in you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.